is good to be back with family. Two weeks, well, I was with my family for two weeks, so I'm not saying that. Was, I'm not, nothing against you guys. You're all awesome. Can't get rid of you. So, but with family, so many of you, it's so great to see so many of you and be back with you. We missed you. Uh, I want to say thank you to Pastor Gabe, Pastor Joyce, and Pastor Barry for uh, just worshiping with you over the last two weeks while we were away refreshing as a family. Uh, we knew you were in capable hands uh, while we were gone. Uh, a special thanks to uh, Tom and Lucy for helping Pastor Gabe last week after service. He came and installed some more equipment for us to help us be able to deliver ministry to all of you and to our community uh, in a beautiful way. Soon, we'll be able to, uh, instead of just use Zoom, we'll be able to send our... Uh, our services out as a broadcast so that people in our community can just watch on almost like YouTube or Facebook or Vimeo. They can watch it live stream instead of having to log in and get into a group and everything like that. They'll just be able to join. So you'll be able to just send people to a link and they can watch anytime. And so that is all thanks to Pastor Gabe and his uh, technological savviness, not mine. Um, so it's just great that we have so many people behind us to help us minister to Cornwall in such a beautiful way. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, Pastor Ingrid and I, we've been living in Ottawa for the last, wow, 11 years. And we have, we have uh, purchased a, a house here in the Cornwall area, and we are 26 days away from our big move. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. One of the things I'm very excited about is cutting down our commute by 45 minutes. I know, right? 45 minutes shorter to get to, uh, to the building here. And so we're excited for that. But you know when you move, I don't know if any of you have moved recently, when you start to pack and get ready for a move, all of a sudden you realize how much stuff you actually have, don't you? You think, oh, I'll just go in and start packing that closet, and you're like, is there an end to this closet, right? It feels almost like a closet leading to Narnia, and you're like, where is the back of this closet? It just keeps going. There's so much stuff in it, and I just want to say something about this series that we're in uh, this summer. This summer, we're moving as a church, Okay, I want, you to, I want you to think of this summer as a summer of transition and moving for us. Because this is a summer that we are looking at spiritual conflict. And whether or not you feel ready for the move or not, we are moving. We're moving from either a place where we didn't know and recognize or understand the conflict we were in to knowing the conflict we're in, or we're moving from knowing the conflict and now being much more aggressive in fighting the enemy that we actually fight. But either way, whether you're new to the idea of spiritual conflict or whether uh, you've been in the battle for a while and now you're just becoming more equipped, this summer is a summer from us moving uh, to a very offensive position within the kingdom of God. And the reason why I say offensive position is because the Bible talks about how the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, if you know anything about what that sentence structure sounds like, gates don't move, do they? Gates don't move. But the kingdom of God certainly does, doesn't it? 
Kingdom of God certainly advances, doesn't it? So we can bust through gates of hell. We can bust through strongholds that the devil has. We can bust through territory that the devil seems to think he has a right to, and we can take that in Jesus' name, can't we? So we're going on the offensive. So I need you to realize you're moving. And so as we go through this, though, we're going to realize there's a lot of stuff in our closets we don't quite understand why we're still holding on to. And so I need to be prepared to sift through some of the things in your closet, some of the things that you understood or thought you understood or thought you needed to hold on to. Maybe some hurts, maybe some hangups, maybe some habits that this spiritual conflict series is going to reveal in your life. And I want you to be ready to let God take those things and either use them for his glory or get rid of them. We got a picture of a snake back there, and you may be wondering, why a snake? Why do we have a snake on our backdrop for this series? Because we're going to crush his head. Okay? So let's dive into the series. I know Pastor Jay did an amazing uh, opening for us last week, and we want to continue to look at that. And last week, we looked at how salvation and freedom are two things that God is always doing. He's always looking to save. He's always looking to have our allegiance with him and to bring freedom to our lives, freedom in our mind, in our body, in our soul, and ultimately in our society, right? We're working towards the kingdom of God coming. And these are also two things that our adversary is looking to limit, destroy, confuse, or offer an empty alternative to. This is the spiritual conflict we find ourselves in. This is the fight that we face in trying to both live and share the reality of salvation and freedom that God has for us and for those in our culture. The story, though, that we sometimes buy into way too easily, which has captured, captured much of our world, is one that ultimately leads to destruction. A story that we just live our lives for our pleasure. We live our lives for the fulfillment of our short 70, 80, 90, 100, 100 plus years on earth. That that's it. And we just got to live life to the fullest now because that's all we have. And we buy into this short life and focusing only on that rather than on the forever. Focusing on what lasts forever. And when, we've, when we look at this, when we look at this, con, this conflict that we're in, uh, I, I want us to think about that conflict and think about how we tell the story of what Jesus offers, that salvation and freedom. When asked uh, about what the most revolutionary way to change culture is, Austrian philosopher, social critic, and Catholic priest Ivan Illich said this. He said, if you want to change society then you need to tell them an alternative story. You need to tell them an alternative story to the, to the one that they're living out. But here's the thing. We have an amazing story, don't we? We don't need to alter our story, do we? One that Jesus saves and Jesus brings freedom. Yet, maybe I can ask you this question here. What if we have the right story, but we haven't been telling it the right way? We've been telling it the wrong way. On our vacation, we went to uh, a restaurant uh, as a family to eat. And a great game, if you have a large family to play in a restaurant, is the game Telephone. 
And why is it a great game to play? Because you need to whisper to the person beside you instead of yell and talk and make a lot of noise. And so we were playing telephone. And you may think, how do you play telephone within a family? I have a big family. So there's enough people for the game of telephone to work. If you're not familiar with the game of telephone, one person starts whispering a phrase in somebody's ear. And you just keep passing along to the person until by the end of the, the, the circle you find out what everybody else has been saying and how that, that story or that message changes throughout the, uh, the, the chain. I think sometimes our gospel message is kind of like that game of telephone, broken telephone, where the message changed or the message got a little watered down or changed. And some of the things that we say are hilarious and some of the things that we say are, you know, can make us raise an eyebrow. So what we want to do is we want to look at how we tell the story of salvation. How do we tell the good news of Jesus to people? Are we telling the right story the right way? Because here's one thing that's true, or a few things that are true of humanity that I, I think we can, all, we can all agree on and look at. Here, here's this. First thing, we all have a God or gods, something that we worship, everyone. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, I don't know. There's lots of people that seem to have no gods. They're agnostic or atheistic, and they don't have anything. But let me pose, pause it to you like this, that anything that we elevate in our lives, we put in front of us as the ideal that we're living and working towards, anything that becomes, uh, you know, where we blur its weaknesses, we elevate its value, we shape our actions around it, anything that we put in that position becomes our God, our idol, the thing that we worship. Because everything in our lives are working towards pursuing it or uh, idolizing it and lifting it up. We all have God, whether that be science, a, a religion of sorts, or no religion. We all elevate something that we are worshiping. We also all wrestle with who we are and who we should become. Based on that idol that we put up there, we look to measure ourselves off of it. If we say we're money, we look at the amount of money we have in our wallet and in our bank accounts compared to the idol that we have in front of us, and we measure our value based off that. If it's a, a different faith system or any faith system, we use that. If it's science, we look at who we are and the world around us and, and how things were, were made or, or, or evolved or whatever, and we, we value ourselves based on what we see. We also all want to make sense in this world both of the good and the brokenness within it. We all look at the gods of this world. We look at the way we worship and the things around us, and we see how things are flawed and broken in that world. We see how things don't quite measure up with what we thought they should be. And we try to make sense of those things. How can there be good things and bad things? How come good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? How do we make sense? We're all trying to figure that out based off of the reality and the God system and worship system that we create. We also all try to apply correct solutions to the problems in us, in others, and in the world, right? We see that good, the bad, the ugly, and we go, this is how you would fix it. This is how it should be fixed. This is how God should work. This is what money can do to solve that problem. This is what science will do to solve all of our problems. We look for those solutions, and we offer solutions based off of what we think would be the right way. 
Most of us also, we wrestle with an ultimate home question. Is this all there is in life? Is this the reality that we are living out? And is this the end of it? We all have that. And whether it's fatalistic or euphoric, we look for some sense of finality or continuation within it. That sums up, to some degree, all of the questions and ideas and wrestles that humanity tries to work through, no matter what God they put in front of them, no matter what they choose to worship. We all try to answer all those questions. All religion, all philosophy, worldviews attempt to articulate answers to those questions. And if you listen closely to your neighbors, to your friends, to people in your lives, they will show you who their God is, won't they? They'll speak to you about where they get their identity from, their purpose from. If you listen carefully, it'll seep out. Even if they say they believe one thing, right? And then you listen to them, you watch their actions, you'll see what really is motivating and driving them. And you'll be able to see their revealed God or the thing that they're worshiping and driving towards. They'll, some of them very quickly will tell you what they think is wrong with others, the world, and sometimes themselves. And they'll also let you know what they believe the solutions are about those things. Facebook and and everything is way, way too uh, full of everybody's solutions for all the world's problems, is it not? Finally, most will wrestle with what's on the other side of death. Is this all there is in life? And you'll hear that in people. You'll hear that in the conversations of those you know, those you love, and those that are around you. And if you were to pick up the Bible, God has woven a story, a single story, with a central hero through 66 books written in two covenants or agreements between God and humanity. And this scripture tells us this. It tells us who we are. It tells us why we exist. It says why we are so messy and how we are to relate to God and how everything will someday be made right. Now, most of us, if we were to put up our hand, we would agree with that. We'd say, yeah, that's what basically what the Bible does. It, it, it explains all of that. But here's, when we get back to that, that question I asked about the story we tell and how we tell it, Sometimes the issue can be that many Christians have the right story, but they tell it wrong. Because often we start with a faulty starting point. And when we have the wrong starting point, our story isn't all that compelling. See, often we start not at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. We start with Genesis 3. Genesis 3, if, just to catch us all up on, on the order of things, Genesis 3 talks about where man falls. It talks about the garden and the snake and the apple or the fruit. And it talks about the fall of man. Not Genesis 1 and 2 that talks about creation and God and what he was doing. And when we, we have that, that missing piece, Genesis 1 and 2, we're missing a major piece of the story. Now, if you think about any movie or play, it's all, all the good ones, right? They have a central arc to the story. 
There's different characters in it. Uh, there's scenes, there's subplots, there's sub-stories going on in it, but it all serves that one central story being told. The Bible is just like that. It's a single story with a central hero that we see unfold through different stages. God, creation, rebellion, rescue, and ultimately, redemption. That is the story of the Bible. God, creation, rebellion, rescue, and redemption. Now today we're going to look at uh, the first three stages of that story. God, creation, and rebellion. Um, this arc absolutely addresses the questions of who we are, why we exist, why we're so messy, and why or how everything will be made right. But in addition to all those things, it has a different starting point than our brokenness. It starts with God. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1. Now you think about your story. Right? It doesn't start at your birth or even your conception. Your story is tied to two other people's stories, is it not? My story is tied to two Dutch immigrants that came from Netherlands. But their story is tied to, more than that, their story is tied to their parents who survived two world wars in Europe before they were able to emigrate to Canada. My story doesn't just start with me. It starts so much earlier than that. It's intertwined with so many other people's stories and the successes and failures that they have had. Now, our stories, they may be love stories. They may be comedies. They may be tragedies or horror stories. They may be a combination of all those things. But there's no such thing as a self-made story. We're all interconnected. We all come from somewhere, somebody. We're all a part of their story, except for God. See, the Bible begins with God already being present, always being present, which means, in fact, that we are part of God's story. It's his story because he's always been there. God creates the heavens, the earth, and everything in it, and he sees it, and it is good. If we go back to Genesis 1, we can read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the heavens uh, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I don't know why there's so much creeping going on there, but over everything that's on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. In this very good story that begins with God and then begins with God creating this perfect world, he starts it with that perfection. He starts it with creating beauty. He starts it with this intent of him in this relationship with his creation. And then he gives this creation, he gives humanity one single command. He says this, and the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day, that day that you eat, you shall surely die. See, it was never God's intention that one would live under the weight of being our own God. That was never his intention, deciding between good and evil. Not only would Adam live under that weight, he wouldn't do it alone, right? Because it says in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Humanity, men and women, we have been living since that time under this curse of trying to be our own gods, of trying to decide good and evil on our own. Think of how many broken things in our world stem from that wounded place of loneliness, separation from God and being alone, and how much injustice is created when we define for our, from our perspectives what is good and evil. If I reflect on my life and I look back at the choices I've made that I've decided what is right and wrong, good and bad, and the injustice that even in my life I can create when I decide who has wronged me and how I need to treat them because of that, and the injustice that we can all do just in that. It's hard to be in that position, is it not? It's hard to deal with that. And so we try hard to define our lives that are in a good way, right? We try to live this good life. We see that, that God created goodness and we want to be good and, and we're trying to figure that out and it seems like a lost and broken world that we're living in. Justin Buzzard in, in his book, The Big Story, How the Bible Makes Sense Out of Life, he says this, that of all the religions and belief systems and narratives in the world, only Christianity says you are made in the image and likeness of God. That from the very beginning of creation, God has defined you with two words. Very good. See, this is when we get back to where does the story start? Who did we, uh, who were we created to be and be in relation with? And it starts with God creating us to be in relationship with him, us being seen as very good. And since the fall, most people spend their time, their whole lives trying to be good enough again. This has profound implications for all of us when it comes to our identity, when we try to be good enough in our own strength. See, if your story starts with just in the beginning, you'll see it as an entirely different story from in the beginning, God. This is one way, again, like I said, that many followers of Jesus get the right story wrong because we often start by telling the story of salvation in Genesis 3, which is our fall and our rebellion. All right, we start like this. We start by saying, let me tell you why you're a sinner. Let me tell you why you need a savior. Let me tell you why you don't measure up. Let me tell you why the Bible says you're lost. Let me tell you what's wrong with you. Let me tell you why the world is so messed up. Rather than, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you first about a God who loves and a God who creates. 
When we start the story from the fall to redemption, we reduce it down to just another faith system where our actions are central to the solution of the story. Think of it. If we say, start with the fall, and we say, let me tell you why you're so messed up and what you need to do about it. Your actions become central to the story being redeemed, don't they? Rather than it's starting with God and needing God the whole way through. I think of our our worship set this morning. It taught our theology for this message, did it not? Didn't, didn't the songs we sing talk about who God is? About it, how it's his breath in our lungs? How, how we need his spirit every single step of the way? That we can't do anything in our own strength? That our blessed assurance is because of what he's done, not because of anything we've done. We worship and we sing with this theology And yet sometimes our lives and our actions and our our ways we think about and talk about our theology don't measure up to those beautiful words we sang. We still look at going, how how do I get things right with God? How do I make things right with God? And again, it puts us at the center of the story. You see, we are supposed to be reborn and transformed by the renewing of our minds to see a whole new worldview, not from our perspective, but in the beginning, God, and to see from his perspective of what he created. And then everything that we do, not, not only buying and selling, but our sowing and our reaping, our, our not covering our sins, but confessing them, our loving one another, each one of those becomes a redeeming act that is, that is a display of his kingdom come as is in heaven. Now, when we leap, like I said, into a half story, it can make a story look like this. Born a sinner, new life in Jesus, convert others, wait for heaven. Doesn't that seem like oftentimes when your faith gets a little dry, you seem like, okay, well, I, I, I was totally messed up. Jesus saved me, and now I'm supposed to help other people be saved. Now we just sit around and wait for heaven to come, you know. And that's not what God has created us to be. That's not what he's asked us to do. A moment ago, like I said, most people live their lives battling voices uh, that they are not good enough, that they, they, they need to be perfect, they need to please everybody, they need to live up to the standard but they don't know that this is merely language of lost people placing burdens on the shoulders of other lost people. But when we start the story the right way, it's, it's a different story. It's a, it's a story that starts with God and not starts with you don't measure up. The story of humanity starts with God who creates male and female in the image of God, to reflect the image of God, to live in the presence of God under the definition of what God says is good. But when we skip this part, we can, people can embrace the, what they are being saved from, but they fail to see what they are made for and being saved for. The full story, God 
creating humanity in his image, when sin enters the world, but then new life begins in Jesus, then we join Jesus in the renewal of all things, in the restoring of all things back to that relationship with God. And it includes, like I said at the beginning, pushing back the darkness. Another way that we share the story the wrong way is that we don't even start with Genesis 3. We skip it altogether. We skip over how deeply our sin affects our relationship with God, how our identity, our sexuality, our world, our relationships, and by extension, all the systems of that world that we create. We skip how the fall affects it and just corrupts it so, so horribly. We affirm how humanity is created in the image of God, but we ignore how humanity rebels against God by defining good and evil ourselves. And we would call this, uh, seeing this in ourselves, an innate goodness. And you can see it in our culture all the time, can't you? And you can see the, the enticement of us to even buy into it, that we're good people. You know, that we're good. Deep down inside, we're all really good, and we're just a little off, and we just need a slight redirection back to God. But basically, we're pretty good, right? And we skip over the depravity that sin creates in our lives. Neither one of those stories becomes a compelling story to fall in love with and to see salvation through. You see, the Bible says that the story is not just about God and humanity. There's another presence there. Genesis 3, 1, 4, and 5, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you do eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, Satan skews God's words. He takes God's words and he, he just twists them a little bit, turns them a little bit. So we, we think it sounds an awful lot like what God said, but it's not quite there. Satan also contradicts God's words where he says, you're not going to die. What's going to happen is you're going to have this knowledge, and he doesn't want you to have that. Satan lies by promising what he can't deliver. And with those lies and with our, our willingness to disobey God, we, create, we, we traded the caretaking dominion that was entrusted to us for death. Think of it. The part that I read at the beginning, what did God say? Let me create man in our image and we will give them dominion over everything on earth. And then we traded that for death. We traded the dominion, the authority that God gave us on this earth for death. What a lie that we bought into. And what do we do now? We are involved in the spiritual conflict as we are restored in Christ, as we regain our position with him to say, no, enemy, Satan, you do not have dominion anymore. Jesus has won. The final victory that he has, he has done. He has accomplished on the cross. We are now going to walk out together. This is a central part of understanding spiritual conflict. 
We're not alone in this universe. There's good, there's evil, there's beauty, there's brokenness, there's images of God, and then there's fractured, fractured images of God by sin. And even though we sin and we fail and we rebel against who God is and what good God wants us to do and the, the holiness of God and the wisdom of God and the justice of God, even do we do, we do that, we see the next part of the plan of the story unfold in Genesis 3.15. Because God then says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we understand, what does that mean? What does that mean, your offspring and her offspring and him bruising uh, your head and, and you bruising his heel? What, is, what does that mean, all of that? How does, how does Satan have offspring? His offspring, what he produces is sin and death and destruction. That is what he can produce, and that's the only thing he can produce. And obviously we know what uh, Eve's offspring are. It is all of humanity, right? It is first Cain and Abel, then Seth, and then through all of us, which also leads to Israel being offspring of Eve, which also leads to Jesus being offspring. And so we see there are multiple ways in which the offspring that she would give birth to would be bruised by this enemy. We can see it as the, 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 the serpent, as the, the devil, as Satan tries to live out his, his doomed and destroyed life, trying to disrupt what God has planned. He, he has a sentence that he cannot escape, but he's trying to, along the way, scratching and clawing, take as many down with him as he possibly can. Think of that verse where he says, you shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does he do when he sees Eve's offspring? She has two children. She has Cain and Abel. And what does he do? He sees one that is, that is righteously trying to give to God. And he sees another who, who he can corrupt and try and bruise and break and bring division and bring destruction, saying, I can mess up God's plan. It doesn't work because Seth comes along Right when 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 through Cain and Abel, how this righteous one was was killed, but then you know Seth comes along, and the, the lineage through Seth, we see uh, Israel can come along. And what does he try to do? He tries to disrupt Israel's path in being the chosen nation, but it didn't work because Jesus comes along, and he tries to destroy Jesus, and yet he doesn't know and understand God's plan that Jesus' perfect life on earth becomes that substitutionary death for all of us bringing us freedom. This crafty serpent has been trying ever since to bring as many down as possible. We are in a spiritual conflict. And yet we do not need to despair. We do not lead to, need to live in fear of anything. Derek Thomas said it like this, the story of redemption is not in one sense a cliffhanger to the very end, a tale the outcome of which is uncertain until the last page is turned. The precise nature of the serpent's destiny as a lake of fire is not disclosed until the end in Revelation 20.10, but from the outset, his doom is sealed. Christian discipleship 
is to be worked out within the context of the assurance, that blessed assurance that we sang about, the assurance of victory rather than the prospect of defeat. We are to be equipped and ready for battle, but with the certainty that the decisive battle with the enemy has already taken place and has been won. Amen? The enemy has been defeated, but that doesn't mean he's going quietly. The enemy has been defeated, but we don't need to fear him because of where we know we can stand in Christ. Because of that blessed assurance. Because it's his breath in us. It's his spirit alive in us, empowering us to live the life that he has for us. We do not live in fear. We live in the authority of our Father. Can you see the big picture of Scripture? Can you see the original intent of our relationship with God? Can you see how it answers those questions of where did I come from? What went wrong? How do we fix it? And what is my purpose? You can see all that. So what do we do today with this? First thing I want to say is this, is remember that we're in a series. We're packing boxes and we're moving through spiritual conflict. And I know that as we talk about these things, it's going to bring questions that we don't have time to answer today. So I want you to stay with us as we work through this whole summer series. And even if you miss a week, you can always watch online and catch up. But we're going to work our way through this to be moving with God in victory. But today, I want to leave you with a few things. One, know that the story is God's story. He is in control. Know that. He is in control because it's his story. Whatever you're going through, whatever challenge you're facing, whatever opposition stands in front of you that feels like it is winning, know that this is God's story. He is in control. Two, know that our true identity predates and precedes sin and brokenness. And through Jesus, we will see and live that identity with God again. Three, know that there is an enemy who is bent on destroying all that God loves. All that God loves. Four, Know that in Christ, we have been given authority as sons and daughters of the king. And we can rest in that authority. And five, know that we press on advancing the kingdom of God and the gates of hell will not prevail. That is what we need to know. Church, we have a story that is compelling. We have a story that does offer freedom and salvation. We just need to make sure that as we tell that story and we share that story, that that story starts within the beginning, God. That there is a relationship that God has always intended for us to have. A relationship of wholeness and perfection with him. Unity with him that is so pure that we are all working towards again. And as we join him in his restoration of all things, we see his kingdom come. It has a now and not yet approach to it. We see the kingdom advance, not in its fullness, but it still advances. 
as we await the day that he comes and returns and brings the fullness of that kingdom to us. But we advance his kingdom today. May we tell people the whole story starting in Genesis 1. May we not skip over Genesis 3. May we see that we are not alone in the world, that we are victorious through Christ, but we have an enemy that needs paying attention to. Next week, we will look at who we are in greater depth in Christ created to be. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that in the beginning, there's you. God, we thank you that this story starts with you. That this story starts with you creating and calling it very good. It starts with a relationship that you intended with humanity. That sin has corrupted, yet your son has redeemed. God, we thank you that when we focus on you first and the storyline that you are creating, God, there is hope in it. There is reason to live. There is freedom and salvation in you because it all begins with you. God, I pray as a church that we would see our story start in you. We would tell a story that is so compelling because it begins with you. And yes, it brings answers to our brokenness, but that answer is always you. God, may we, as we go through this series on spiritual conflict, may be aware that there is an enemy who's going to, who is currently trying to take us off track, trying to mess us up and destroy us and and take our eyes off of you. God, may we know that we can stand fully secure in who you are, in your authority. And as we learn through the summer series, what we truly have in you, God, may it equip us to fight fiercely and advance against the kingdom of darkness. We pray this in your name, your amazing, wonderful, saving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.